It's good to be with you this morning. Good to see all of you. And looking forward to this morning, already enjoying this morning and our singing together. And uh, looking forward to our time in the Word together. This morning we are in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, all the way through chapter 9. We're going to read that all here in a moment. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Genesis, starting in chapter 8, verse 20, all the way through chapter 9, is what we'll be reading for this morning. But before we read, I want to pray. Thank the Lord. I want to pray and thank Him for His goodness and His grace to us. And for how good he has been, how how he has blessed us in so many ways, even this week. And then we want to pray for God to open up our hearts and ears to hear his word, to apply his word, to be transformed by his word. So I'm going to pray and pray along with me, if you will, silently, as I pray for us publicly. Father, we come to you this morning undeserving, meriting nothing but your judgment. We deserve nothing but wrath, justly so, because of our sin. We all are acutely aware of our sin. Daily, we are reminded of our unfaithfulness and of our undeserving state. But you have shown us grace and mercy and goodness in every way, everything that we see, everything we behold. Every day we wake up, we look around us and see your glory and your goodness and your grace abounding. We thank you for this country that we live in. We thank you for the laws that protect us, protect life. We thank you for the government and for the leaders that you have given, you have given to us to do your will, to do your purposes of protecting us, protecting life. Lord, we we confess, we often complain, we bemoan the state of man, even in our country, in the state of our government. But there is so much to be thankful for. Even this week, Lord, we thank you for the Hinches. We thank you for Julie being able to become a citizen this week. What a a blessing that is. And as we watched people from Iraq and from Afghanistan and from Vietnam and Thailand coming from governments that don't always protect them and coming into this country where they will be protected their life will be sacred in many 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 ways we thank you for that and we thank you for the hinges and their blessing to us and the church we thank you for this blessing of life lord this week as we welcomed two babies into our church this week thank you for the bags Thank you for the birth of their child, the safety that you gave. We thank you for the Wongs, for Brandon and Heidi, and the birth of their child, the safety and provision that you gave. We thank you for Luke and Lexi Copley, even right now as we are here, they are in labor. I pray that you would protect them Protect Lexi and the baby. Give wisdom. I pray that you would protect their hearts as they trust you in this time of pain and difficulty as they bring forth life. We thank you for all the many ways you provide and protect. Now as we come to your word, I pray that you would give us ears to hear eyes to see, hearts to believe and trust in your goodness and in your grace. Magnified most clearly 
in the person of your son and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Christ is born, we can proclaim that because you have accomplished this. So we thank you and give us eyes to see this. This morning we pray in your name, amen. Genesis 8, starting verse 20, if you will stand with me in honor of God's word. Starting in verse 20, my son, I asked my son this morning, William, my four-year-old, do you want a long sermon today or a short one? He said, a short one. He did. He told me a short one. Well, it's not going to happen, but <laughs> I'll, I'll try, son. I'll try the best I can. Anyway, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. It's one time a week we meet together. It's okay. All right. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know how often you read the news or watch the news or how much news intake uh, you are accustomed to during the week. You know that if we wanted to, we could 24-7, right, be 
constantly looking and taking in news. Have you ever stopped to consider what news we usually hear? I don't know if you know how this works, but news agencies, news sources, they want money. And in order to get money, they need advertisers. And in order to get advertisers, they need viewers. And in order to get viewers or readers, they need to be sensational. They need to give you what they know you want. And so it's this cycle that never ends. They constantly are bombarding you with things that you want to hear and want to see. And because of that, we come to a place where we think the whole world, right? The whole world is burning. Everything is falling apart. And the government is corrupt. Why? Because you want to believe the government's corrupt. That's why they tell you the government's corrupt. And that's all you get over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But here's, here's the thing. 99.9% of people this morning woke up in houses here in America that are well stocked, have heat and air conditioning, they are safe. I drove to the church this morning and there were stoplights and roads. 99.9% of America, they're doing just fine. But it's, it's, it's the sensational news that we hear and we take in all the time. You see, our streets are not running with blood. Did you know that? 99.9, and I'm giving a statistic, right? I'm making a point. It's an overstatement. But 99.9% of churches in America today will meet in safety. Did you worry this morning about somebody coming in and disrupting our services and taking us all off to jail? No, you didn't worry about that this morning. I would say we're doing okay. But yet what we take in weekly tells us just the opposite, doesn't it? And so people are anxious and people are worried and people are concerned. I'm not saying there's no reason. I'm not, I'm not saying there's no reason at all, right, to look around and see the sinfulness of man and the, the discouraging times that we live in and the darkness of the world. The, the evidence of the darkness of the world is abundant. But how often that becomes the lens through which we see everything instead of God's goodness and God's grace. I was struck by that. I prayed for it this morning. We were sitting in the federal courthouse this week as I watched, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 people become citizens of the United States of America. And I was crying because I realized the governments that they come from and with the government they're coming into, and it moved me. I thought, what a country we live in. What a blessing God has given us. What safety he has provided for us. Our text this morning has a lot to say about the conditions we live in and we enjoy today. We come to a very unique moment in human history in Genesis chapter 9. Think for a moment where we've been in the text. God, by his powerful word and in his goodness, has created a very good world in Genesis 1 and 2. This is what he says. He saw everything that he had made and behold, it is very good. In that creation, he has given man to be the central caretaker. He has given mankind the central role in his creation. But we find out in Genesis 3 that man is not content to dwell with God in a covenant relationship, trusting him and obedient to him. He, he is not content, mankind is not content to dwell in fellowship with God and exchanges unashamed communion with God for shame and nakedness and death. Chapter 4, we see Cain kill Abel. God had given a promise that he would send the seed of the woman who would put an end to sin and death. And yet, in chapter 4, we, say, we see that mankind is killing one another. And this violence increases. The promise is threatened. 
If mankind is wiped off the face of the earth, if mankind kills one another, this promise will die with man. And this becomes the focus of the narrative, the promise of the seed and the opposition from the line of Cain. How will the promise of seed come about that will bring life and blessing back to the land that God has created? Blessing instead of curse for man in the land or on the earth and through his promises. We saw last week what happens because man is violent upon the earth. Remember the pretext for the flood? Violence fills the earth. Violence fills the earth. Man's wickedness is great. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Filled with violence, the hope for the promise is dim as we enter the flood. But Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is chosen by God. In the midst of all the wickedness and violence, there is one man who lives righteously in his generation, who's blameless. And God chooses Noah, not because of Noah's, not, not because of anything Noah has done, but because God, of God's electing sovereign purposes to carry out his promises. God chooses Noah and brings salvation for mankind through Noah and through the ark. Every living thing upon the earth dies except for those who are in the ark of safety. God then returns the waters, as we saw last week, to their natural created boundaries. So what we saw last week is that God has uncreated in the waters of the flood, but now he recreates the earth through the separation, once again, of the waters. And what we have is a new creation. Man steps out of the ark onto dry ground, into a new world, a renewed opportunity, another chance. And this is the context for the passage today. Genesis 8 and 9, what we'll look at today, takes place right after the flood. And this text defines for us a reality that is still in place for us today. This passage and its importance cannot be overstated. It is extremely important. Chapters 8 Chapter 8, verse 20 through 9, 17 deals with the Noahic covenant. That sounds, really, that sounds really impressive, doesn't it? The Noahic covenant. See, I went to seminary so I could use words like Noahic. Noahic just means Noah with an I-C at the end, right? So the covenant made with Noah, the Noahic covenant. This passage deals with the Noahic covenant. And then verse 18 through 29 there in chapter 9 it will finish out the gene- genealogy that started at the beginning of chapter 6. And we'll find out in a very intriguing story about Noah and his three sons what is about to take place. We'll find out some interesting things. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in the first half of that. We're going to spend most of our time today with the Noahic Covenant. And then we are going to talk very, very briefly at the end about this story at the end of chapter 9. But don't worry, we'll return to it again next week, okay? We're going to talk about it a little bit more next week uh, as we... Talk about the table of nations in chapter 10. But today, today we will focus primarily on the covenant God mediates through Noah. Now last week we saw the word covenant appear for the very first time. Now when we use the word covenant, people start getting a little nervous. It's like using the word election or predestination. People get a little nervous about terms like that. The word covenant can indeed be confusing or even a stumbling block for some. But I, 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 want, I want you to, to understand that these words are biblical words. They are biblical terms. The term covenant isn't just a term found at times in the Bible. It's important. If it was just a word that happens... A, at times during the Bible, it would be really important to define, right? But it is not just a term that happens at times throughout the Bible. In fact, the concept of covenant, the term of covenant, 
is in fact what provides the spinal structure for the Bible. Here's what I'm saying. If you fail to understand the concept of covenant, you will be greatly impoverished in your understanding of the Bible. Because this, the covenants, is what the Bible is shaped around. This is what connects the whole Bible. In fact, Old Testament, the word testament means covenant. New Testament, so your Bible is even shaped like that. Old covenant, new covenant. We need to understand how these relate. Think, and this is the illustration I use all the time. Think about a connect-the-dot puzzle. You remember those connect-the-dot puzzles? Remember they all have numbers next to them? One, two, three, four, five, and it goes all the way. Really fancy ones can go up to in the, in the hundreds, right? And you have to connect the different dots. What if you had the connect-the-dot puzzle, but you didn't have any numbers next to the dots? I, I'm afraid that's how a lot of people read their Bibles, they have a lot of really good information. They memorized or they, they know the stories. They got a whole lot of good information, but they have no idea how to actually connect it. Covenants, the covenants of Scripture actually are what provide the connections. This is what gives us the picture of what the Bible is actually saying. And so without those connections, we're going to be impoverished in our understanding of the Bible. God has chosen to communicate his word with this covenant structure. Because, why did God choose to do that? Because covenant, covenant defines the relationship of God to his people. Did you know that if you are in Christ today, you are in a covenant relationship with God? You need to understand what a covenant is because that's going to help you understand your relationship to God. Without that, you're greatly hindered in your understanding of what it means to be in Christ. Covenants are indeed more than a contract. Sometimes people use the word contract to talk about covenants. Covenants are more than a contract. Covenants are a relationship that, are, that is formed out of promises made, oaths taken. The best illustration, right, is a wedding, a marriage. Those two people that stand in front of all the witnesses, they are entering a covenant with one another. We would say that's more than just a contract, wouldn't we? Hopefully. This is a relationship formed out of promises and oaths taken before witnesses And with some penalties attached if those promises and oaths aren't followed through. The witnesses are meant to hold accountable those who are participating in the covenant. That's why you go to weddings, by the way. You don't go to weddings just to eat the cake or the mints. You don't go to, you, you don't go to wedding just to dance at the end, okay? You go to a wedding, to a wedding to be the witness, to be witnesses to this entering into a covenant. It's beautiful. It's powerful. God enters covenant relationships with people, with solemn oaths and promises, with great penalties if the promises and oaths aren't kept. And these covenants shape Scripture. So here with Noah, we have a covenant that is made. So we have several questions. What's the nature of this covenant? What are the terms of this covenant? So what are its promises and obligations? Who are the participants in this covenant? All questions we need to answer. Here's another question you want to answer when you're talking about covenants. How is this covenant, the Noahic covenant, connected to the other covenants of Scripture? What is the continuity of this covenant with the other covenants? What is the relationship between this covenant and those covenants? So I want, to give you, I want to give you three truths about the Noahic covenant. The first two I'm going to go through fairly quickly, and the third one we're going to spend most of our time on, okay? And uh, I promise to try not to get sidetracked. Number one, so in, in all these I want to try to answer those questions that I just posed. What's the nature of the covenant? What are the terms and the obligations, the promises of the covenant? Okay. What, who are the participants in the covenant? 
And then how is this covenant related to the other covenants? First truth, I want you to know about this covenant. The Noahic covenant, Scripture tells us, is a covenant of grace. The Noahic covenant is a covenant of grace. Look at it there in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. This covenant is precipitated by a sacrifice. It is precipitated by a pleasing aroma, a pleasing sacrifice. The Lord is pleased by the aroma of the sacrifice. And there is a sense in which this sacrifice of Noah satisfies the Lord and brings creation back to, I'll say it this way, an uneasy rest. So God created the heavens and the earth and he rested. Sin The sin of mankind brought the world into disorder and violence and and wickedness. God destroyed mankind. God destroyed the creation, recreated. And here in Noah's sacrifice, we see God once again being pleased. So remember when he made everything, he said, it is very good. This statement's kind of parallel to that. He is pleased with what Noah has done, the sacrifice. It is a pleasing aroma. And because of this pleasing aroma, God says in his heart, the Lord says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. I will never again curse the earth. When he says that, this this does not mean that the curse that Adam has brought upon the ground is ended. This this, This does not mean that what Adam has done is reversed. Look down at verse number Eight. This is where, in chapter 9, verse 8, this is where God actually tells Noah. In chapter, in chapter 8, verse 20 and following, we see the Lord in his heart saying what he's going to do. In chapter 9, verse 8 and following, we see him telling Noah. Look what he says to Noah. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So there's two parts to this promise. Well, up in, in uh, verse 20 and following, there's, you see the same two points. Verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So we see two, two promises he makes. The Lord makes two promises. I will not curse the earth again, meaning I will never again destroy the earth, as I've done in the fl- with the flood, I will never do it with the flood, with the waters. I will never uncreate with the waters again. And that's what he's saying. Not reversing Adam's curse. But he's saying, I'll never again destroy the earth in that way. The second promise is, he will never again wipe out every living thing upon the earth. So he makes those two promises, and with that, he gives another promise, a third promise. And the third promise is this. Not only will I never again send the flood like I did, which by the way, this is another point, this is another evidence that this was a global flood in chapter 6, because there have been a lot of regional and local floods, okay? And if if it was a regional and local flood, then God hasn't kept his promise. It must be a global flood. This This is what God is promising. I will never again flood the earth like I did. And I will never again wipe out every living thing like I did. But then there's a a positive promise. He says, along with those two other promises, I give a third. The third promise is this. I will keep order and stability for the earth as long as the earth remains. Look at it. While the earth remains, verse 22, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God says, I will not curse the earth again. In other words, I will not send a global flood again like I did. I will not wipe out every living thing on the earth again. And I will ensure the order and stability of the earth as long as it remains. Here's here's the implication here very quickly before we move on. 
all the inhabitants of the earth experience the promises of this covenant every single day. The Noahic covenant is still in effect. Every one of our lives, every, every life under the heavens, every living thing upon the earth experiences the grace of God every day. We all experience his mercy every single day. Notice, sin has not been done away with. We're going to see that as we look at Noah's life here in a moment. And he says that, when the Lord spelled a pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He says the, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It always is. I will never again do what I did, but, but man hasn't changed. In other words, the flood, the flood should come upon the earth every single day. Let me say that again. The flood, God's judgment against sin, and the, the wickedness of man should come against the earth every single day. But it doesn't. Did you know this morning, as you woke up, you're experiencing the grace and mercy of God? Did you know that the snow that is on the ground right now tells us that God is still keeping his promises? The summer, the winter, the spring, the fall, the day, the night, the harvest, the sowing season, all of these things tell us over and over and over and over again that God keeps his promises. And in this sense, I've got to be careful here, don't, don't get upset. In this sense, we, we can kind of be universalists. Everybody on the earth experiences the grace of God. This is what we call common grace. So the Noahic covenant is a covenant of common grace. And we can be thankful for this. God does not deliver everyone from sin and death eternally. But God does preserve and sustain the life of every living creature under the heavens. Even today. So the Noahic covenant is a covenant of grace. Number two, the Noahic covenant is accompanied by a sign. Now this is the familiar part of it. Everybody knows this part of the story, right? What's the sign of the Noahic covenant? The rainbow. Now you, you, you got to get this. Covenants are made... With signs. Covenants are made with signs. This is, when you make a covenant, you give a token. You give a sign to show that you have now entered covenant. This is a basic part of covenants. So, when a covenant is made with a people, a very large sign has to be given. Right? When, when people are married, they give a sign, a visible sign. What's the visible sign they give? A ring. It's the visible sign. This, this visible sign says, I'm married. Right? That's the sign of the covenant that I've entered with my wife. When you make a big covenant, a covenant with a group of people, the sign has to be big. Well, in this covenant, we just saw that God has made a covenant of common grace. This is a covenant with everyone in the world. It needs a very big sign. And so he's given a sign. This is a sign given by God. It says, I will set my bow in the cloud it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So here we have, again, the participants in this covenant. The participants is everyone that inhabits the face of the earth. Everyone is blessed by this covenant. And in this case, the sign is first for God. Did you see that? Look at it there in verse 14. 
When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, you've read, I'm sure, at some point, there is no Hebrew word for rainbow. This is a bow of warfare. Okay, that's the word for bow. God has hung his bow up. He has hung his warfare up. No longer, think about how the bow is shaped. The bow is pointed heavenward. It is not pointed at the earth. People have made much of that. But God says, when I see that bow, I've, when I see that bow in the clouds, I will remember that I've set my bow up and I will never again judge the earth in the way that I did with the flood. So this is for God. This is for God to remember. Again, it's not because he's forgotten, but to say he remembers means he's going to make good on that promise. What, what a reminder of God's mercy and grace we, we see in the rainbow, isn't it? What a, what a reminder of God's mercy and grace for all of us. It's a sad irony that a symbol of God's mercy and grace is used predominantly today to thumb the nose at God and his designed order. But what does the rainbow truly signify? It signifies this God keeps his promises. Now, this is why this is important for us. It's important for a lot of reasons, but this, this is what I want you to think about. How do I know that God will keep his promises to me in Christ? How do you know that? Every time a rainbow appears in the sky, you're reminded that God is a keeper of his promises. He is still keeping the Noah covenant every day. And just like he said he would, this is God's character. This is who he is. And that's why I put Isaiah 54 on the screen for liturgy today. I'll read it for you again. This is what he says to his people. He says, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. Talking to his people. And will not rebuke you. For the mountains, listen to this, for the mountains may depart. How hard would that be for the mountains? That would be some kind of... For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace, that's talking about the new covenant, my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The Lord keeps his promises, and that is what the bow is meant to remind us. Every time he sees it, he keeps his promise to the earth. And every time we see it, we can say, praise be to God who keeps his promises. We can be assured of his promises to us because he is a promise-keeping God. I, I know that Again, the rainbow has been used for other purposes, but I want to encourage you as Christians, we, we can redeem this rainbow, okay? The rainbow first belongs as a sign of God's faithfulness and of his promise keeping. We should see it and rejoice in that. And I, I've, this man, I'm hoping that you understand what I'm saying. When you see a rainbow hanging in the in the windows of people's homes and you know what they're saying when you see the rainbows hanging in shops and in stores and you see what they're saying i want you to rejoice that god indeed is a keeper of his promises and that god has not sent judgment upon us like we deserve and you look at that and you you look at that and instead of getting angry in your heart i can't believe those people would would thumb their nose at god like that instead of doing that why don't you rejoice in the fact that god hasn't brought judgment upon us And God has actually not brought judgment upon them. And that there is still opportunity to save. Can we rejoice in that? Instead of getting angry? There will be time for judgment. That time is not now. 
And we need to rejoice in the compassion and the mercy of God upon people. Number three, the Noah covenant is a covenant of grace. The Noah covenant is accompanied by a sign. The Noah covenant, number three, this isn't going to sound very interesting, but I, wa- I want you to follow this. The Noah covenant is a modification, a modification of the covenant made with Adam. The Noah covenant is not a new covenant. The Noah covenant is a covenant already in existence with Adam, the covenant of creation. But now it is modified in light of man's sin. So God makes a covenant with Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. Man sins against God. They are not faithful covenant partners. God sends judgment upon the earth, saves Noah. He doesn't make a new covenant with Noah. He reaffirms. That's what it means when he says, I've established my covenant with you. In the Hebrew, that's actually a word meaning that I affirm or I affirm an already existing covenant, okay? So I'm affirming with you, Noah, what I affirmed with Adam. Noah, and we see this all through the, all through the text, Noah is the new Adam, But now, it's not the same state as the created state. Now, sin exists. And so this covenant that was made with Adam, it is renewed or reaffirmed with Noah, but with modification because of sin. He tells them right there, look at it. In verse 1 of chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Doesn't that sound like the covenant he made with Adam? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This begins, this command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth begins the instruction and it also concludes it. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God still wants man to multiply, be fruitful, and fill the earth. This commission, by the way, if the Noahic covenant is still in effect... This commission to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth is still in effect. This is what God wants his people to do. This is what God wants the earth to do. Now again, I think the reality of Christ changes the focus to not just having babies, but to making disciples. If you have babies, you ought to make disciples out of them. Right? We rejoice over babies being born, but we want to make disciples. So all of us participate in this mission. Not just those who have children, but all of us, we seek to make disciples. And like I said, there are new measures given. There are modifications made. And these modifications are to ensure the preservation of life. Look at it. Verse 2. Remember, in, in, the original, in the original, he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and have dominion. He doesn't have that requirement, have dominion. But now he says, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish, the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So he makes provision for the preservation of life. Animals will now fear man. I think this has at its heart the preservation of life. Can you imagine a world of sin where animals are not afraid of people? Can you imagine that? There would be a lot of death. And it wouldn't be on the animal's part, it would be on man's part. Okay, so God puts fear of man on the animals. And we're still experiencing that. But he says, and he says, you can... Eat the animals now. Mankind can eat the animals, and we are all thankful for that. Anybody glad we're not all required to be vegetarians? Anybody? Okay, thank you. So he says you can eat animals. But look at what he says. You cannot eat animals with the blood or the life still in them. If you imagine a bear... What does a bear do? A bear goes down and he, with his mouth or with his claws, he catches a fish and he just rips it open and he eats it. Why? Because he's a bear. He's an animal. You and I are not. So in this, we see a distinction made and we also see men, again, 
given his place of honor. We are not like the animals. We can eat animals, but we will not, we should not eat them with their life still in them. The point is that life is precious. Did you know that the life of animals is precious? Animals should be shot. Animals should be killed for food, for sustenance. At different times in history, in different places, you you kill an animal so you can clothe yourself or build your house. We, We kill animals to protect human life, absolutely. But we are not to kill indiscriminately. We're not to kill lightly. You see, a society... A society shows who it is by how they treat animals, believe it or not. We should treat animals with dignity. Their life is precious. Why? Because God is the God of life. Not the God of death. With this added parameter about animal life, we also see that there's an added parameter about human life. All of life is precious especially the life made in the image of God. So, so look at what he says. And for your lifeblood, the life is of, of the flesh is in the blood, right? For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. So if, if an animal kills a man, that animal should die. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. By man. God, this is important, God gives mankind the power of the sword. But for what purpose? God gives man the power of coercion. Coercion. But for what purpose? The, the power of force. But for what purpose? To carry out justice. Man is made in God's image. You know the language for image is used three times at creation and then after the sin of Cain and then here after the flood. God is reminding man of who he is and what he was made for. It's like a reminder for him after the flood. Remember who you are. Now, because of the violence, because of man's sin, because of the violence that will run on the face of the earth, we must take some extraordinary measures. Mankind must carry out justice. You remember, you remember when Cain killed his brother Abel and, he, and God came to him and said, where's your brother? And he, what did he say? Am I my brother's keeper? The Noahic Covenant says, yes, you are indeed your brother's keeper. You cannot kill man. And those who kill man, those who shed the blood of man, by man, the sword is in man's hand to carry out justice. To keep the blood from running in the streets, we must have some restraint. Some restraint from the violent and life-choking sin of man. Mankind must be restrained very quickly. You know, the belief that man is ultimately, the belief that man is ultimately good is what leads to the downfall of society. It's just a sign. It's plastic. It falls. Things happen. It's all right. The Noahic covenant's still in effect. Things have not fallen apart. The belief that man is ultimately good leads to the downfall of society. Did you know that? When a government thinks and when a government assumes that mankind will act as they should, that leads to the downfall of the government or the society. In order for government to be, for government to be effective, that's what we have in the Noahic Covenant. We have the building blocks for government. In order for government to be effective, it must understand the nature of man is sinful. Understanding that will help them build just laws and carry them out. But I want you to hear the other side of that as well. The sword given to man, given to government, cannot cure the heart of man. It can simply restrain his sinful tendencies. It cannot cure his sinfulness. You cannot cure lust by coercion. 
You cannot cure lust by force. You cannot cure hatred and murder by the sword. These realities, and on and on we could go, right? These realities exist in the heart of man continually. Therefore, government is needed to restrain man from complete chaos. This is, this is really important. I'm going to go through this very, 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 very quickly. It's not going to be the full treatment. At some point, maybe we should have a full treatment. I want you to understand, and, and we're going somewhere with this, government Government has a modest role in our lives. Government has a narrow lane within which they are to operate. Their, their responsibility, the responsibility of a government is to protect life. And in to, to ensure an environment where the multiplication of life can take place. That's the role of government. Now, there are many applications and extrapolations. We could, we, could, we could debate back and forth about how far that goes. What does that mean? But it does seem the Noah Covenant teaches us the one job that government has is to protect life, to preserve the environment necessary for life's multiplication. That's why God gives it. Therefore, the, the government has the responsibility, responsibility to protect. They are not to try to bring the world to perfection. They cannot. The role of government is not to enforce morality or to make man righteous. They can't. The role of government isn't merely to provide services that makes your life more enjoyable. Not fundamentally, not its basic root. The fundamental role of government is to protect life. It's preservation and multiplication. That's what government's for. And this leads then to that final question I, I gave you regarding this covenant. What is the relationship of this covenant then to the other covenants? This covenant, the Noahic covenant, again is a restatement and a modification of the Adamic covenant, the covenant in creation. It's a covenant of common grace. It is a covenant that preserves life, but it is not a covenant that can bring about the end of sin and death. It only seeks to restrain. So how does this covenant relate to the other covenants? The other covenants of Scripture are for God's people. This is very important. The other covenants of Scripture are for God's people. The covenant made with Abram is a covenant for God's elect. The covenant mediated by Moses after the Exodus is for his nation, Israel. The covenant made with David, again, will be with and for his people, for their king and the king's rule, which will be global, by the way, in the end. And the new covenant of Christ accomplished by the blood of Christ is for, with, and for God's people who are defined by faith. So how does the Noahic covenant then connect to these other covenants? Very, 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 very important. The Noahic covenant provides the protection. It provides the safety, the net of protection so that these other covenants can come to pass. The role that the Noahic covenant serves is to give order and stability and protection so that God's covenant promises can come about. That's the role of the Noahic covenant. In other words, the Noahic covenant is God's protection against the wickedness of man to allow a space for his promises to come to fulfillment. Human government then, get this, human government then is accountable to God. We find that in Romans 13, don't we? Human government is accountable to God for the purpose of good, to restrain evil, to protect life. Why? So that his promises can be realized. 
the Noahic covenant is not replaced by the Mosaic covenant. We could drill down very deeply on that one. In other words, what I'm saying by that is the Ten Commandments are not actually what form the foundation of our government. Think about it for a second. Can you take the sword and make somebody love God? Can you take the sword and make somebody honor your father and mother? Can you take the sword and put it to somebody's neck and say, you must keep the Sabbath? Maybe if somebody wants that. Our country has had Sabbatarian laws in the past, right? Why? Because they saw a melding between the Mosaic Covenant and the Noahic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is for God's people, for his priestly people, his priestly nation. The government then is related to the church in a very important way. The government isn't to do the church's job, but to create a safe space, a protected space for the church to do its job. That's what government's for. The church then, by contrast, has been given the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. The church has been given the keys of the kingdom of God. The role of the church is expansive. The role of the church is to bring the glory of God through the preaching of the gospel. This is the role of the church. The role of the government is to protect that space, to preserve life and to make that possible. So, the state has a very narrow role and function. The church's role and function is comprehensive. We deal with the kingdom of God. We are priests, just like his people Israel. We are priests to the world. So, so the, get this, the church has the main role. <laughs> the church has the main role. We have authority as the church for eternal, eternal realities. One day the earth will be brought under King Jesus. The government has a very narrow lane to stay in. In 1 Timothy 2, there's so much more to this, but in 1 Timothy 2, we give a, a, Paul gives us a wonderfully succinct picture of this. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then get what he says. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see the relationship there? He says, pray for the kings. Pray for the government. Pray for these people. Why? Because if we can live a peaceful and quiet and godly life here. We can preach the gospel and it is God's desire that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The church should be involved in politics as the people, right? We should be involved praying. (laughs) If you feel led to run for office, do it. We should exhort the government to be righteous, to carry out Righteous, justice. But we've got to understand who has the mission and who serves really the supporting role. You want to be involved in government and politics, great. You know what your mission is? Create a place where the gospel can go forth safely and where people can hear it and respond. That's the mission. The mission is also always the gospel. We see... That the promises of God can come about because of the provisions he makes in the Noahic covenant. Speaking of those promises, right? The promise of a seed who will come to bring an end to sin and death remains. The Noahic covenant protects that promise and its fulfillment. If ever there was a time in human history, if ever there was a time in human history to establish righteousness on the earth and create a people who would love God, trust Him, and obey Him. If ever there was a chance to accomplish that in society, it was right after the flood. 
right? You take righteous Noah and put him on the boat with his family. All the bad people are wiped out. Who gets off the boat? Righteous Noah and his family. This is the the chance society needs, right? All we have to do is get rid of the bad people. It doesn't work that way, does it? After Noah gets off the ark, he makes his sacrifice. The Lord is pleased by that, but then he plants a vineyard, and it says that he, becomes, he begins to be a man of the soil. This is a direct parallel with Adam. He plants a vineyard and drinks its wine and becomes drunk. Not the drinking of wine is a sin, but the drunkenness is. He becomes drunk, drunken to the point that he lays naked in the middle of his tent. If sin could have gotten been, if sin could be gotten rid of, the flood would have accomplished it. But nope, it doesn't work. Sin still exists, and even in Noah, here you have a, here you have Noah, the righteous Noah, in a state of shameful nakedness. You remember you remember what happened to Adam when he ate of the fruit? What happened? He was naked and ashamed of his nakedness. This is what you have with Noah. He plants a vineyard, he eats or drinks of that fruit, and that results in nakedness and shame once again. This shame is discovered by his son, Ham. A lot of conjecture about what in the world's happening there. Sometimes we we hurt ourselves by all the things that we read. It's very simple, I think, just by the text. What Ham does is dishonorable, but it's reversed by what his brothers do. I don't think he does anything sexual with his father. I don't think there's any kind of hidden sexual meaning there. Ham looks. Here's here's simply what he does. Ham sees his father's shame. He sees his father's nakedness, and instead of seeking to cover the shame, instead of seeking to cover the nakedness, he exploits it. He makes fun of it. He mocks it. He tells his brothers. He publishes the shame and the dishonor of his father. The other two boys take a covering and back up so as not to see their father's nakedness and covers him. When Noah realizes what he has done, when Noah realizes what Ham has done, he curses his youngest son, Canaan. Now, again, I told you we'd come to this next week. Canaan, you say, well, that doesn't seem right. Ham is the one that sinned against his father. Why is Canaan cursed? Well, remember who this is written to. This is written to Israel. Remember who, whose land they're about to go into. They're about to go into the land of Canaan. And so he is connecting the curse here and the sin of Ham to Canaan. And he gives them a promise that indeed Canaan will be their servants and they will succeed. But here we see the, the dynamic remains. There is still a promise in effect. There's protection now given for that promise to come about, but there is still sin. There's still curse. There's still opposition to that promise that will continue. As I said earlier, I'll close with this. As I said earlier, we can be with the Noahic covenant in a sense, right? We can be universalists in that we see God's grace upon all people. We see his common grace. He's not bringing judgment upon us as we deserve. He provides the basic building blocks of government to protect life and to restrain sin, and we're so thankful for that so that we can carry out this mission of proclaiming the gospel. But this, the Noahic covenant, is not the salvation that man ultimately needs. Do you see that? The preservation of the earth is not the salvation that man ultimately needs. If you watch the news... What are you going to be told? The earth, the earth is warming. We've got to do everything we can to save the earth. If we don't save the earth, it's all going to be over. God's promise he's going to preserve the earth as long as it remains, okay? Settle down. God is the one who keeps the earth. The preservation of the earth is not our salvation. Also, the government is not our savior, one way or the other. The government is not who we look to to save us from all this unrighteousness. No, the government is there to restrain sin. God has put all these things in effect so that the message of salvation can actually come 
about. We read Isaiah 54 earlier. I want you to listen to Isaiah 9. We're about to celebrate Christmas. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our hope is not in the preservation of the earth or in the government. Our hope is in, in that child who was born, who brings true salvation for mankind. I love that song we sang, Come All You Unfaithful. One of the verses says, Come, though you have nothing. Come, he is the offering. The Noahic covenant was precipitated by an offering that pleased the Lord. But that, that offering, that salvation, that is not the ultimate salvation. What we need is a salvation, an offering for our sin. Come, though you have nothing, come. He is the offering for our sin. He has died for our sin. He has risen from the dead and, and achieved victory over our sin and death. Believe upon Christ. He is our salvation. Come though you have nothing. Come. He is the offering. See what your God has done. Lord, thank you for your protection and the restraint of sin. Thank you that you have created a space for us, for your people to live peacefully and godly in our lives, we, we thank you for what you have accomplished, how you keep the seasons, how you keep the world in order. But I pray we would not just see this protection and the restraint and we would just not stop at being thankful for that. Help us to see why you've created this space so that we can see the, the good news of your King, your Son, King Jesus, and his salvation extend to all the earth. Thank you for your covenant in Christ. I pray that you would give us new eyes to see hearts of thankfulness, rejoicing. And that when we are tempted to anger, when we are tempted to anxiousness, we would look at even this covenant, the Noahic covenant, remember what you're doing. And then remember what our role is in the, in the world today, in the earth today. That we trust you, be obedient as your people. We thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen.